we are a part of that collection of two white men <laughs> doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Or does I'm, it? I'm, totally helps with the topic. We're talking, we're talking about, about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theater. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. ES Audio. Hello, I'm Nick Curtis. I'm Nancy Dorrant. And I'm Nick Clark. And this is what's coming up on this episode of the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. We review Dear England at the National Theatre, a play by James Graham. This stars Joseph Fiennes as England manager Gareth Southgate and Gina McKee as sports psychologist Pippa Grange. Over at the Gielgud Theatre, I met up with Millie Alcock of House of the Dragon and Succession's Caitlin Fitzgerald for The Crucible. I mean, it's just such a gift when you're given such extraordinary writing because there's a million ways to play it, there's a million ways to do it, and it's just like cooking with really good meat. And after that, we'll be discussing Schoolgirls or the African Mean Girls play, written by Jocelyn Bio and directed by Monique Tuco. That's on at the Lyric Hammersmith Theatre. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. Before we start, quick reminder to give us a follow and a rating. Five stars would be fantastic. As has said every theatre director ever, speaking to a critic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's been going on this week? <coughs> Big succession news. Big succession, succession, on stage. succession news. Sarah, yep, Sarah Snook is coming back to the London stage for, I believe, only the second time. Yeah, indeed. You, Siobhan Roy herself. Yes. Nick, you met her first time uh, when she made her London stage debut Ooh. in The Master Builder at the Almeida, which I remember really, really well. You said she was great. Oh, she was a real delight to interview, I've got to say. And, you know, this is a world away now. It was in 2016, so before succession was even a... You know, a sparkle in the eye of Jesse of Jesse Armstrong. But yeah, yeah, I met her, and she was really, really fabulous. And and I thought, in a very difficult part, really pulled it off. She was an absolute star. I mean, she was a sort of unknown Australian mm. then, coming over to play the part of Hilda Vangel in the Master Builder opposite Ray Fiennes. That play, as with much of Ibsen, but particularly that play, I feel it's a bit like that old Edward Lear line. You know, when they're good, they're very, very good, and when they're bad, they're horrid. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> and this one is it's particularly sort of creepy and mm. icky, really, because it's about an old man and a young girl, yeah. and uh, she has this sort of psychological power over him. It's an incredibly difficult part to play, and she was fantastic mm. in it. Absolutely spellbindingly convincing and amazing. And I thought at that time, this girl's going to go far. And then, bosh, you know, seven years later, <laughs> she went. there she is. So but it is part of the ongoing succession takeover. I know. We've got, like, we've got, we've got Harriet Walter theater. coming up in the house of Bernardo Alba. Have we said we? what the she's national. in? We haven't said what she's in. She's, she's in the picture of Dorian Gray. <laughs> which is opening in January. Which is opening in January. And it's, it's a one-person adaptation, which seemed to be also all the rage at the moment, as well as succession stars. You she's know, playing sort of 20-odd parts in it. Yeah. She is. Something indeed, crazy. yeah, completely crazy. I mean, I wonder if this is the economics of uh, cost of living biting now that people can only afford to put one actor on stage at the moment. Or maybe one very expensive actor. People yeah. just want to see more Sarah Snook. It possibly. might be that. It <laughs> might be that. But you're right. We've got Harriet Walter coming in the house, Bernard Rabel. We've got Brian Cox coming in Long Day's Journey in tonight. We currently have one of our interviewees this week, Caelan Fitzgerald, who played uh, Roman's girlfriend Tabitha uh, on stage in the transferred mm. National Theatre production of The Crucible. And Alice Birch, I think, is writing on House of 
Bernarda Alba, isn't yes. she? And she wrote on, I think, at least the early seasons. Yeah, of absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it's an absolute. It's an absolute take. It's a. It's a corporate takeover. It's a corporate takeover. <laughs> it's a hostile takeover of, yeah. our, of our stages. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's really exciting. I mean, <clears throat> I'm, I, I have my mixed feelings about one-person shows or mm. you know solo shows generally. They used to be sort of retirement homes for for former stars who were slightly well, past yeah. their prime and but stuff. So like we had a bit of a. There was one we did not like. There was one we did not ago. like recently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we have Andrew Scott's um, one man oh, Leah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, no, Van, 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 yeah. Van, yeah. Van coming yeah. up soon, which I'm starting. You know, I'm I'm more intrigued by. I've the, got a lot of confidence in Andrew Scott's ability to pull off something like that yeah. more than than some people. I think. I mean, but that's the thing. Like when we were talking about, you know, it was okay. It was the Eddie Izzard, um, uh great expectations that we didn't like, but um, he's become a, a decent actor over the course of his sort of career but Andrew Scott is an exceptional actor yes. and has been for many many years and I think someone like that can probably pull off yeah. something like this but it's not easy yeah. Talking of one person shows can I change the subject a little bit but on Friday I saw what I thought was one of the performances of the year at the Royal Court where I saw Cato Flynn doing uh, all of it Yes, uh, play by or three plays really or three monologues by Alistair McDowell but all of it the title track the last one mm. is an absolutely extraordinary piece of work which charts someone from literally being a baby all the way to their death yeah. and takes an extraordinary feat of acting by Cato Flynn I really wanted to just highlight that because it was on for a short run not many people have seen it but yeah. if you're going to the Avignon Theatre Festival <laughs> she will be performing there so ah. book your tickets now well, it really right. is exceptional and you can listen to our interview with Kate in the show notes do we just do a quick roundup of some of the good stuff that's mm. that's open right now? Like it's a it's a pretty great time to be going to the theatre at the moment, isn't it? We've it liked is. a lot of stuff. Groundhog Day, yep. which I keep banging on about to everyone I see. Um yeah. at the old Vic I think is really, really excellent. But mm. there's also stuff that's sort of opening in the next few weeks, I think, as well. Like Beneath's place at the Young Vic. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. Um but it's Kwame Kwai Arma, the Young Vic's artistic director, his mm. play. He wrote it. He's also directing it. It's been on in the States before, I think. But yeah, I'm quite excited to see that one. Yeah, there is. You're right. There's lots of there's lots of fascinating stuff already mm. around at the moment. Uh, the Crucible, I think, which I saw this week, has improved since it was. At yeah, the I heard that. I heard they've done some really interesting casting tweaks, which they've, has made it really, like, yeah, really sl- like actually quite a lot stronger. I mean, it was really good at the National, but here it's just you know it, it somehow sits better in one of those Victorian theatres mm. than it does on the, on the um, Olivier stage. We got the transfer of Accidental Death of an Anarchist, which I saw that in Hammersmith. Yeah. That, was, that was absolutely brilliant fun. And A Strange Loop, which I'm going to be on holiday yeah. for the opening of, but direct from Broadway. I mean, there's fiery pre-publicity about that one, isn't there? I yeah. think, you know, London's tongues are hanging out for that one. Yeah, I saw that one on, I saw that one on Broadway, actually, <laughs> last year. And uh, it is really fantastic. I remember coming out and thinking, the the fact that that is on Broadway shows you just how much theatre has changed in the last sort of decade or so. It's yeah. absolutely, it's really, really good. It's super interesting. And I went with a group of people, like one person around about my age, a bit younger, and also two people in their 70s, and we all absolutely loved it. But the other thing I was just thinking in terms of big name stuff, Dr. Semmelweis yes. coming mm. to the, I think it's Harold Pinter. That's right. With Mark Rylance, which should be quite a well, It's always moment. a theatrical event, isn't yeah, it, when exactly. Mark yeah. takes to the West End stage. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that can, that's coming in from Bristol, which is where he yeah. did it yes. first. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it'll be, it'll be just wonderful to see him on stage mm. again. Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be a good summer of theatre, mm. she says, about summer. to go on holiday. <laughs> 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 yes. 
Thank God they've got the air conditioning sorted out in most of the old yeah. theatres now. Exactly. I remember 20 years ago, summers were an absolute nightmare in, uh, in London theatre. Should we review a show? Let's crack on. Yeah. yeah. This is Dear England at the National Theatre. I think this one is basically tailor-made for you, Nick Clark, because it is the kind of bringing together of your two greatest passions, <laughs> one of which is theatre and the other of which is football. Yeah, the planets have definitely aligned for me on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I was so looking forward to seeing this. Basically, the play starts in flashback with uh, a young Gareth Southgate stepping up to take the crucial penalty at Euro 96 against Germany in the semi-finals. It's a defining moment in English football history for the England team, but also for Southgate himself. Uh, so then we leap forward to 2016. The, uh, can I just spoiler alert? He didn't get I it in. I wasn't going to spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. But yeah, he but missed. It's kind of, yeah. it's, it's it's kind kind of, of a plot point. Yeah, <laughs> He missed. Uh, well, we always lose on penalties, so yeah, he was always going to miss it. But we leap forward to 2016. And England football is in crisis yet again. The team has been knocked out in 2016 Euros by Iceland. Uh, the new manager has just been fired because he was caught out in an undercover newspaper sting. This is Sam Allardyce, who was, who was caught out while <laughs> drinking a pint of wine. Drinking a pint of wine, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And interesting side fact, the uh, theatre editor of Time Out was served a pint of wine at the bar. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. And, well, I saw the National Theatre football scarves as well. They really were going for it. I loved it. Um, yeah. But yeah, and so uh, the golden generation of, of Lampard and Rooney is coming to an end. There's no silverware and a new hero must rise. Except the only candidate appears to be Gareth Southgate, who uh, <laughs> no one thinks this soft, softly spoken, emotionally intelligent man really has what it takes to impose brilliance, excellence and bring England back from the depths. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, what he sets about doing is going in a completely different direction. He brings in Pippa Grange, a sports psychologist, to really tackle what is it about England penalties and losing that we can't shake off. And what follows is, is a sort of canter through three tournaments, uh, the ups and downs, and, and, and basically ultimately how he took on this sort of failing, toxic culture yeah. and made the England men's football team likeable again, which is one of the most extraordinary achievements in recent football in history. It is extraordinary. Yeah. He did totally change the culture. Mm. Um, I am not a football fan. I was constantly being derided by my flatmates for referring to uh, halftime as the interval in the past. Um, <laughs> See, I've, I've done the opposite. Exactly, yeah. They say, stop calling it halftime. I've been to precisely <laughs> five football matches in my life, but the only time I really got into watching it on television was after the Southgate reign when I I finally sort of mm. understood what my wife and all my friends have been banging on about mm. for all those years. And one of the things that I think James Graham communicates so powerfully here is that it's about stories. Yeah. This is couched in terms of a three-act structure, mm -hmm. isn't it? It's the World Cup in Russia. Mm -hmm. It's Euro 2020, which delayed to 2021 for reasons we all know about. And then the World Cup in Qatar. Yeah. And so he's trying to get people to concentrate on the long you know, the long view, the long game, if you like, mm. and about what story they want to tell the fans yeah. about being English, what being and English... change that story, update it for yeah. the people who form part of that team. They yeah. aren't the 1966 team. They know. aren't. They aren't. They're, they're, they're all those wonderful characters, aren't mm. they? You know, Harry Kane, Jordan yeah. Pickford, yeah. Saka, Rashford, Rashford. And they're beautifully created here, aren't they? As, they, as these they, sort of young, raw... You know, talent really that that Southgate shows, but also vulnerable young men, which is the real um, interesting part of this play. I mean, there's a slight issue that I was finding to say with programmes like The Crown, and it's, it's, this slightly suffers from it of when you can't suspend your disbelief to think in private, do they really say stuff like that? In The Crown, the yeah. first series, I'm thinking, the Queen really say things like this? Yeah, but 
with this, he mostly gets it right. I mean, we'll talk about Southgate in a minute. That he gets absolutely spot on. There are a few times where I think, would the footballer say this? Is that yeah. a, but yeah. actually, it's very few. But the, but the other thing, I mean, I haven't seen it yet, which is why I'm keeping my mouth shut yeah. a, a bit. That generation of young men, you know, they are very different. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the f- things are that you're referring to, mm. but they do talk about their feelings in a way that that our generation, your generation, Nick, like, they don't really do. And no. I, I wonder where, and it, and it does seem a little bit alien sometimes. It's, a, it's, it's interesting. There's lots in there about how he's trying to encourage them to talk to one another, how he's trying to break down barriers. They, when they all this meet first, they sit in. down to Southgate that this is yeah. how they can talk. They're given mm-hmm. space to talk. The, the way the sort of rivalries of the past, so the sort of adversarial relationship with the press can be broken down through and social media. Clubs. And between clubs. In, in he, the dressing room. He stops room, them would... sitting in their club sort of silos right. in the dressing room and encourage them to talk Which to one another. Which was a big problem. You know, right. Chelsea players would sit together and they wouldn't sit with the Man U players. You and can't all sit with us. Very much. Yeah, and <laughs> because they were sort of battling for, you know, in the yeah, Premier League yeah. and it turned into this really toxic... Well, they're made thing. into enemies, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. It is a little bit schematic, this, as, as James Graham's plays can be, just because there's so much information and publicly available yeah. information that has to be packed in. Mm. So there are moments when people come come on stage wearing face masks going, cool, pandemic, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> things, are, things are bloody COVID, things like that. there's not much you can do about that. You can't. What's amazing about James Graham is his ability to write about something completely different through the medium of something else. So yes. It is about the England football team, but it's also about England. It's yeah. also about psychology. It's about how you shake off the past, how you tell new stories, how you don't have to be shackled to what you think defines you and how you throw that all off. It's about our national our national character told through our national game at the National Theatre. Yeah. So, no boom, back well, of the net, hat-trick. James Graham is so good at looking... Mean, I think we've probably witted on about this before, but he's so good at looking at issues and sort of large subjects through a very a, a narrow and unexpected prism an oblique, and here, yes and, and yeah. you know football Gareth Southgate is that prism and that's, yeah. that's sort of amazing it's, it's such Absolutely. an extraordinary which vision, brings us to Southgate and the performance of Joseph Fiennes oh. I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary. It's uncanny, first, isn't it? He comes out and initially you're like, oh, this is Joseph Fiennes playing Southgate. And he just gets the mannerisms. He gets yeah. this sort of the really the mild mannered, but actually very steely. What's really what really comes across here. Yeah. Is this is a man who really is inclusive, but he will not be pushed away from his, you know, his ideals. So mm-hmm. every at every level from the top down, the two Gregs who are running the yeah. football association, down to the, the other staff members who are saying, you've got to be a man, you've got to be tough, you've got to shout, you've got and he absolutely rejects all of this. And somehow through Josephine's performance, he brings all of that in. By the end of it, you think you're watching Gareth Southgate. You do, you do. absolutely extraordinary. I mean, one thinks of, of Joseph Fiennes as a sort of, you know, strapping, handsome, mm. leading man, mm. and Southgate as a fairly sort of small, um, yeah. wiry figure. But the two of them just meld completely in this. You're right, he's got the mannerisms, he's got the, the speech patterns. Yeah. Cannily, it sounds exactly like you're listening to Gareth Southgate, but it's not an impression. It's a fully rounded performance. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing. Moving on to the footballers, I think a lot of them are great. I love Josh Barrow as, as goalkeeper, Jordan Pickford. Oh, he's Especially fantastic. during the penalty he, and he really gets it. It's hilarious. Will Close is fantastic as Harry Kane. I think there's a slight problem in the writing of Harry Kane, actually. Right. Far be it for me as a Chelsea fan to support a uh, Tottenham <laughs> player here. But um, he's very much set up as the sort of uninspirational figure, slightly slow of thinking, possibly. And it's interesting. I was watching Ian he's Wright. He's actually not. He's quite clever, isn't he? Can well, Ian Wright was in the audience and I could see him silently glowering. Ah, he clearly didn't appreciate the, the how right. this came across. And brush. I've got to say, 
I was watching it and I think there's obviously a redemptive arc and anyone who knows you know the story of football will definitely know that but I think you can tell us if you're a theatre fan which way this is going to go but it, it, I think it leans quite heavily on the comedy of that yeah. and you know I can see why someone like Ian Wright who I think is probably quite close friends with, with Harry Kane because everyone else is quite nuanced I mean Jordan Pickford's quite hilarious but he's never really made fun of in that That's way right. I think but you know some of the other players uh, Dara Hand as, as Marcus Rashford Lewis Shepard as Deli Ali get real interesting sort of psychological moments with their characters I mean they don't they can't really go too in depth because again mm. it's a real canter through it you is know. and it's a full team uh, you know they have to field on stage so they only get a certain amount of time in the sun don't they a lot of people I've been seeing say um, there's it's an impeccable renditioning of Eric Dyer as oh. well and his particular accent well, because he has Sorry, an extraordinary is Eric Dyer well he's an England midfielder slash centre back who plays right. for Spurs as well right. but Thanks. what's so amazing is you first listen to his accent you think I'm not quite sure what what this actor's doing till you remember that Eric Dahl was brought up in Portugal ah. and he came over here a bit later on so he has this quite interesting tr- yeah. British slash European accent and, ah. and actually the actor's got it spot on I mean the only problem is what you remember and this is from watching a lot of football it's such a minor quibble because there's nothing they could do about it is essentially the presence of footballers and you can't really replicate that they do look like actors wearing football kits yeah, yeah. And, and but there's, there's, I appreciate there's yeah, absolutely you nothing you can sort do sort of six days a week in order for that absolutely. to really work yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and so there's that uh, the other thing I really want to bring up is the music so um, as a football fan of a certain age uh, hearing Fat Les's Vindaloo in the <laughs> Olivier auditorium yeah. was hilarious I mean it's slightly anachronistic because it came out in 98 but it speaks wider to that laddish toxic yeah, sort of culture yeah. of like Wee, beers and pies and yeah. all that stuff and then about how they get rid of that but getting the whole audience on his feet to sing Sweet Caroline yeah. I mean that is <laughs> you, in terms of theatrical experiences of the year that is right up it there is, it is like it's, it's what theatre audience behaves like a football crowd don't yeah. they there's real you know enthusiastic cheering and just yeah, joy yeah. sweeping through the, the well, auditorium when the players times. run out and give their clubs there's people go boo yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny. great it's what it's well I mean James Graham has always said that he wants you know he wants to make theatre which is political but also popular and I think he absolutely nailed it here. Yeah, yeah. Right, let's go to the ads. After that, we'll be joined by Millie Alcock and Caitlin Fitzgerald for The Crucible, and they tell us why they're feeling a little bit homesick and their favourite things about London. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We are a part of that collection of two white men doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Does it? Uh, totally helps with the topic. We're talking, talking about, about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theater. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. On Tuesday, I met with Millie Alcock and Caitlin Fitzgerald in the Diana Room of the Gilbert Theatre, where they're performing in the National Theatre's transferred production of The Crucible. I started by asking Millie how the role came about for her. Uh, I just, I I really wanted to do theatre because I've never done a play before. So I kind of hounded my agents in getting me some sort of theatre gig and my audition came up for The Crucible and it was a very quick audition process and then... Here we are. Right, and how about you, Caitlin? Is it, is it something you'd been coveting for a while? I, a bit of Arthur Miller? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's one of the greats, isn't it? Um, I had only ever sort of wanted to do theatre coming out of university and got swept away by film and TV for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I'm just coming back to plays, which is great. I did a play at the Dunmar in the winter, and and then this came up. And I believe you, you studied here in Rada, didn't you? I did. I, said, I spent a semester here, yeah. Yeah, and I think I read an interview where you'd said that you always sort of coveted classical theatre or, you know, sort of Indeed, dramatic Yeah, no, roles. I was only going to do Shakespeare and check up, and then was on a show about sex, so right. <laughs> that was different. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> it happened to everyone. It happened to you as well, Millie, didn't it, yeah, really? Yeah, kind yeah. of, yeah. That's uh, House of the Dragon. We should probably explain a little bit, for those who don't know the play, I mean, it obviously is extremely well-known, but um, written in 1953 by Arthur Miller as a response to the sort of Red Scare mm-hmm. then hitting Hollywood, and particularly to the colleagues of his, particularly Elia Kazan, who named names to the House on american Activities Committee. But it's based on the Salem witch hunts. Tell the listeners a little bit about about your characters, Millie, if you'd like to go first. Um, Abigail is a villain, but she's not a villain. I fucking love her, and I hate how people have made her this conniving, malicious girl when she's, in fact, a 17-year-old who had an affair with an an older man who has more position of power than her and then somehow becomes this villain and vouches for her love and is blind by it and is given a voice and doesn't know what to do with it and it kind of explodes and she's completely incapable of having a life outside of Salem so she she runs away um so yeah yeah. That's Abby. Okay. And Caitlin, tell us a little about <laughs> that who was you great, man. Yeah. <laughs> and you're so right. Like these days, if in a John Proctor Abby Williams situation, yeah. we'd be like, yeah. this is called grooming. This is grooming. And, grooming. Abuse. and everyone's like, John, go, John. I'm like, yeah. John. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about it, though. Even though the play does seem to be sort of evergreenly relevant and it hits lots of new notes now about fake news um, Mm. and about sort of herd behaviour and mentality, doesn't it? But I think the sexual politics of it has dated quite um, badly in terms of both the women. What would you think about that, Caitlin, in terms of your character? Yeah, I mean, sort of to echo Millie, I I kind of hate the way Elizabeth Proctor is often portrayed and... Um, that was the first thing I said to Lindsay Turner, our director, when I met with her, was I just, I'm not interested in a prim, prissy ice queen. And the sort of, the way the two women are often um, played as these polar opposites, I just, feels fake to me. It yeah. doesn't feel like women I know. So, Because yeah. there is a slight implication as well that, that sort of Elizabeth is somehow to blame for John's affair, do you think? Or it can be well, read that way. I mean, let's also be clear that Arthur Miller was having an affair or had just had an affair with Marilyn Monroe as he was writing this play. So I think when Elizabeth says at the very end, you know, it was my fault that this happened. Um, And I, my read of those lines is that it's, it's more about, you know, it takes two people in a relationship. um, Yeah. And... And then that's always true. But, yeah, it does feel a bit like Arthur Miller giving himself a pass. He gets quite a lot of a, a pass. Bit. the great sort of liberal, you know, cerebral hero. He gets quite a free pass on quite a lot of stuff, doesn't he, Miller, he sometimes? He does. But I will also say for him, like, I think there is a version of... He could have written a version of Elizabeth uh, that was very one-dimensional. And I think on the page, actually, I think she's incredibly human and wins the argument yeah. frequently. And yeah. I think... 
as Lindsay said, it, it's a great writer who writes the person, the other person, that dimensionally. It's the lesser writer who goes, who just makes themselves into Absolutely. Millie, one of the things I really liked about your performance was I couldn't tell how calculated Abigail was being, mm-hmm. whether she was in control of the situation or not, or she's whether she not. was being carried away. From it. She's not at all. She's right. the most powerless person in the room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the irony of the whole play. Yeah. All those girls are. Yeah. Do you feel it's sort of, it's having contemporary echoes now? Are you aware of those as you're playing it? Yeah. I think, I think so. I mean, it's a timeless play because I think it's about the worst of us and mm. that sadly never seems to go away. It is about certainly Salem Witch Trials and McCarthyism, but also written less than 10 years after the end of World War II. So I think the Holocaust is in there as well and yeah. on Arthur Miller's mind. And I, to me, it is about what happens in mob mentality and how we can get on the, the train of evil before we even know that we're on it. Um, so that doesn't seem to have changed. Very That's much. true. Yeah, yeah. How is the language? I was I was impressed again by the language of it, by the the fact that it is it's a very sort of artfully developed seventeenth century um, version of sort of American English, I suppose, mm. or you know only just American English because you can hear sort of traces of Irish in there or English or Scottish accents. But it also seems to be very extremely clear. How is it to speak that language? It's really beautiful. It's really fun. Yeah. Um. Yeah, because it's just, I mean, it's just such a gift when you're given such extraordinary writing because there's a million ways to play it and there's a million ways to do it and it's just like cooking with really good meat. Right. Yeah. That's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. Very Australian way of putting it. <laughs> well, can't help that, can I? Um, Millie, how has the, um, how, what's your perspective on House of the Dragon now, now that it's been out there a while and, you know, you've, been, you've surfed this incredible wave of not being hugely well-known and then suddenly being mm. immediately hugely well-known. Yeah. I mean, I loved that show. It, 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 it changed my life permanently and very quickly. And I'm excited to see where it goes and how it grows and changes. And I adored everyone who I worked with. Um, so, Yeah. Yeah, and I know you're both adopted Londoners. So tell me, what, what, Millie, what, what drew you to to our fine city? Well, I, I did House of Dragon, and then I was like, I can't really go home. <laughs> so when your life changes that drastically, it's hard to go back to the place that you're from because you change, and the people who have known you from where you grew up think that you've changed, and the people who have met you in this new time don't know who you were and who you're becoming and you feel like you have to be someone else in the process of it, of like fulfilling this like people coming up to you. It's like, oh no, I don't think you know that I'm just like me mm. and I'm just a very normal human person. So I felt like I, I couldn't go home because I didn't, I, I wasn't ready to face that. Yeah. So I just stayed. And how's it going? What, what do you like about London? What do you miss about Sydney? I've been really homesick at the moment. Um, I love the opportunities here and I love the vibrancy of the city. It's just, it's so rich and big but i miss the sea so much (laughs) i miss the like just 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 being just knowing just knowing where you are and not feeling like a stranger and not feeling like you know you're different and yeah just just being known for you i grew up on the same street my whole life right and then i covid and then life went wonky so the ocean really mostly yeah yeah. Yes. It's a huge upheaval for you. I mean, COVID and, every, and House of Dragon happening effectively at the same time, mm. wouldn't they? I mean, you moved here in the pandemic, didn't you, or mm-hmm. just after? Yeah, 2021. Amazing. Extraordinary. Yeah. And Caitlin, you're from Maine originally, I believe. I but I think I'd read in an interview that you said you'd always wanted to live in London or certainly work here. Was that yeah, the case? Yeah, I've always loved London. Uh, I think I came here for the first time 
14, 15, and um, had one of those sort of uncanny, like, this feels like a home place. Um, but, and I do, and I'm so grateful to live in London. I love it here, and um, I'm really inspired by the city and excited by the city, and feel like it's so there's so much to discover. But that thing that Millie just said about you don't realize you're a stranger in mm-hmm. a strange land until you go home, and suddenly everything's familiar. Yeah. And you like just the sounds, the yeah. smells, the like, yeah. Yeah, the stuff yeah. at the grocery store, the way people interact, and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm a little bit back-footed all the time. Right. Which is good, I think, in some ways, and is exciting and challenging, but yeah. it's nice to go home. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know it's in, it's in the West End for a limited run, but uh, do either of you know what you're going to be doing next? Nope. Nope. Holiday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Just get to the sea yeah. somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Is that partly a response to this? It's, a, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a th- an almost three-hour play. It's very intense. Is it, is it hard to play? Is it, is it taxing? Yeah. It's just it's just it's it just painful every night. It is. I just get home and I'm like, Phew. It's one of those things, yeah. isn't it, where you go like, all I want to do is some like huge, epic, like <laughs> stretching master work and then you get it and you do the first run through and you're like, Oh my goodness, I have to do that a hundred more times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're like, Give me a commercial. Feel yeah. very, very tired. Yeah. But yeah, we'll mm. we'll be owed a major holiday a hundred percent well i think you both absolutely deserve it thank you thank you for joining me on the podcast thanks thank for you chatting. that was millie alcock and caitlin fitzgerald and the crucible is on until september coming up after this very short break we'll be discussing schoolgirls or the african mean girls play at the lyric hammersmith 're a part of that collection of two white men doing podcasts we're two queer white men does that differentiate us at all with the topic we're talking, talking about, about musicals and we're talking about musical theater <laughs> I'm Peter and I'm Nathan and yes musical theater has gospel and dancing boys and fancy hats so join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Jamie Parker, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Now it's time for us to review Schoolgirls, or the African Mean Girls play at the Lyric Hammersmith Theatre. I haven't seen this, so Nancy, was it any good? Uh, Yes, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. So this is a play by uh, the American Ghanaian playwright Jocelyn Bio. It's directed by Monique Tucot, and it's essentially a sort of serious story about colorism masquerading as a high school comedy. Isn't that fair? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Queen Bee Paulina rules her kind of crew of terrified friends, in inverted commas, with a sharp tongue. until her position is destabilised by the arrival of a new student. And the friction between them is brought to a head by the arrival of a recruiter for the Miss Garner pageant. You can kind of work out roughly where it goes from there. Yeah. But it's actually based on, the, uh, I didn't realise this, but the 2011 Miss Garner pageant, in which a mixed-race uh, woman was, who was born in Minnesota... Uh, was voted Miss Garner, which sparked this massive row about colorism. She had previously placed top 15 in the Miss USA competition right. as like Miss Minnesota. So yeah. it's it's sort of parked on that. But um, it's uh, it's kind of, yeah, it's it's I think it's got some really interesting stuff in it. It's also very funny. Yeah. I and mean, it is very funny. It's a high school comedy, which is 
sort of hilarious, I think. You it's know, true. It's, it, it is quite close to Mean Girls, isn't it? Yeah, so very. In, in that it, it is basically about the shifting allegiance from one toxic leader to another. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And, and actually, it, Erica, the transfer student, I thought she was kind of a bit too nice. She's yeah. sort of almost a little bit too perfect. The only thing that she does wrong is that she swears really badly in front of somebody at exactly the wrong time. Yes. Um, but uh, she's kind of a bit too sort of angelic in a way. I did really, really enjoy it. What did mm. you think, Nick? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, it's not the most play I think um, the issues are worked through fairly directly and mm. openly on stage aren't they I think there is a there's a, a wider point that it makes about the way Africa is perceived by the West, rest of the world yeah. in the case particularly here they're, they're competing to be a Miss Ghana with a view to going to a, a, a larger the, the beauty pageant. pageant yes yeah. Yeah, which has historically at this stage play set in 1986 has never been won by a dark-skinned woman yeah yeah exactly but it also I mean it also deals slightly uh, slightly clunkily, to be honest, but affectingly, I think, with the sort of Philip Larkin effect in that it explores like how the, the sins and prejudices of the parents are visited yeah. on the children. Like One of the girls has an eating disorder of sorts in that she hoards food, yeah. and that stems from her mother's obsession with her daughter's weight. One yeah. of them hates her appearance because she's the darkest in her family and they won't let her forget it. One of them doesn't really know who she is. She's got an absent father, so you know their relationship is very difficult. And the cruelties that they meet out to each other are directly related, possibly a little bit too directly, as you yeah. say. It's quite sort of like, this is what happened in my life and you should feel sorry for me. Yeah. Um, but they're directly related to the cruelties or kind of casual disregards that they've received from their parents. That's and very it is well sort put, of yes. Yeah, it, it, it explores quite a few things. Yeah. I really liked it. And I thought the performances are lovely, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, I, I think it's very good on where it's, it's, where it's more subtle and less on the nose is in the portrayal of the joy but also the toxicity of young girls female mm. friendship you know yeah. how poisonous they can be to one another but also how the affection between them I, I quite like a lot of the incidental stuff the characters of I think Mercy and Gifty yeah uh, I love I really love Bola Akeji actually who yeah. plays Mercy her comic timing and she's, her physical comedy are particularly she's good she's very 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 funny indeed yeah. Um, and yeah I think you know a lot of the just the way the girls physically interact together you know the way they sort of sometimes sometimes touching one another sometimes pushing one another off I think is very very well observed yeah exactly um, and that weird thing that teenagers do which is sort of break into dance or song and yeah. sort of at a completely random time like yes. going up the escalator on the tube obviously they don't do that here because they're in Ghana but it's just that funny thing that they you know they, they have these sort of bursts of of, of kind of popular energy. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, they, and they have these shared, they, these shared obsessions. And again, a lot of these are sort of refracted from a, on an African perspective on a sort of um, more European culture. Yeah. So they're, they're obsessed with Bobby Brown. They're obsessed with clothes, aren't they? Yeah. Particularly Calvin Klein or Calvin Klein, as they call him. Yeah. And there's, there's a very, very funny moment when, uh, when they're auditioning for the pageant and they have to together and separately sing Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All I mean, which is just just really you know, brings the house bad. down yes yeah. <laughs> it's very very I, I went funny. to see it in a midweek matinee there were quite a lot of young girls you know sort of dotted around the auditorium um, and they were having a while of a time they yeah. were, you know, I think they were seeing themselves on stage or you know versions of themselves you know as you said it's, it's sort of the issues are kind of complex and interesting and it's very engaging it's not wildly sophisticated but it is super engaging and when I went to see it, it was Saturday matinee and the audience was massively engaged, you know, really reactive. And I would say probably 
a conservative estimate, a good 50% of the argument, uh, of the audience was black women, yeah. which is brilliant, you know, as yeah. you say, there's some people seeing themselves on stage. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention a couple of other actors, one, Jadisola Odunjo, who plays another girl, Nana. Yeah. She had this terrible moment of dilemma over whether to defy Paulina and do the right thing, and you really felt for her. You were really like, whatever you do is not going to go well for you in this situation. You've been put in this terrible, yeah. terrible sort of moment and, and everyone was really like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. You know, yeah. It was really it was really great. But it's I also true. thoroughly enjoyed the former Mean Girl and Miss Garner 1966, as yes. she mentioned me- several times, <laughs> the character called Eloise Amponsa, who's played by Deborah Alley, who is hilarious, yeah. but also extremely convincingly ruthless and unpleasant. Yes, it's true. She so was great. She's one of the two grown-ups here, the other yeah. one being the headmistress. Um, but it's very much, it's the girls' it's the yeah, girls' it's play, I think. And uh, you very rarely see African stories on the London stage, don't yes. you? I yeah. mean, I think the last one I can think of was Mandela at the Young Vic, you know, yeah. which is a kind of different order. So to have a domestic, yeah. you know, story about young black yeah. African women is really quite rare yeah, and really, really rare. refreshing. Yeah, and it's, I think Jocelyn Bio is, as I said, she's American Ghanaian. This did very well in New York. York in I think it was 2017 mm-hmm. I think it was uh, um, extended at least twice off Broadway yeah. so you know you can see it's a great example of the fact that there is a huge audience yeah. for yeah. these kind of stories I, I think th- it's I think she's got another play coming but I'm a bit tired and I can't remember who told me. <laughs> I think Monique Tuco is a real coming force in the directing world isn't right, she, right, as yeah. well which uh, so, yeah, I, I'm delighted to see more work from her. Yeah, no, it was it was really it was really great, and it is very funny. Um, yeah. So I'm really excited to see what what comes next. We've said in the on the, in the past on the podcast, it's remarkable that the Lyric Hammersmith, which has always had a slightly troubled identity, never know it's it's a big theatre, it's a yeah. matching auditorium wrapped in a concrete shell. Yeah. Um, it's never really sure whether it's a local theatre or a, or a national theatre, mm. you know, or or a, a major uh, West End theatre. Um, becoming this sort of rather radical and experimental place with, yeah. with tons of interesting stuff pouring out of it. Yeah, um, it's, is it Rachel O'Reardon? It's Rachel O'Reardon who runs it, I just think yes. she's got a really good eye. She has got a good eye. Um, and um, it's only 80 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a dream. That is a dream. Well, there's been a lot of, there's quite a lot of long theatre around at the moment. The Crucible is three hours. It earns those three hours. But, you know, sometimes 80 minutes is just what you fancy, Absolutely. really. Absolutely. And that's it for this week's Theatre Podcast. Thanks to our guests this week, Millie Alcock and Caitlin Fitzgerald. You can find all our interviews just below this episode, such as ones with Tim Minchin, Daniel Rigby, Kate O'Flynn, and many more. You can find all our reviews and news online at standard.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss a new episode. And thanks as ever to our producer, Rachel Abbott. We'll see you next week. Listener.